Welcome, friends, to The Hero Beside Me, the podcast that seeks to explore the professional and private lives of working dogs of all kinds. For thousands of years, humans and canines have shared a special bond and an essential partnership, which continues to grow in importance in our society today. Dogs are helping humans in a myriad of ways, performing essential tasks that only they can perform. The more we learn about them, the more endless their potential seems to be. It is my goal to document the way these amazing animals are making an indelible mark on our world with their astonishing abilities, incredible drive, insatiable zest for life, and unconditional love, which they generously bestow upon their humans. Join me as I explore the wonder of these canine heroes beside us. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be hearing from Fire Chief Steve Sweeney of the Heartland Fire Station in El Cajon, California, where Yara the Firehouse Dog lives. You can hear about Yara the Firehouse Dog in episode 20. But in today's episode, we're going to be talking about USAR dogs and USAR dog handlers. Steve Sweeney was a USAR dog handler and deployed with FEMA for many years. And he's going to tell us today about what that's like and also He's going to tell us about his experience working his dog at Ground Zero after 9-11. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back, listeners. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Fire Chief Steve Swainy of Heartland Fire and Rescue in the city of El Cajon, which is in Southern California. And Steve has a wealth of stories and experience being a dog handler, and I'm just so excited to hear all about it. So welcome, Steve. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Give us a little bit of a background on yourself and your career. Well, I've been in the uh, emergency services for almost four decades. I've been on the fire department for 35 years. And part of my journey through my 35-year career, I got um, selected to be on the urban search and rescue team, the FEMA task force. I originally started out as a rock breaker or a knuckle dragger um, as a rescue specialist. And when we went to the uh, Summer Olympics in Atlanta um, in 96, we had downtime because we were just staged. And part of the process was is that each discipline kind of did a training and, and showed everybody else what they could do. And they brought out these dogs, the, uh, the disaster search dogs. And they did a demo with the obedience and the agility and the searching part of it. And I just thought that was kind of the coolest thing in the world. And I pretty much got the bug. And that was with uh, uh, Wilma Melville, who was part of the National Disaster Search Dog Foundation, um, was part of that group with her dog, Murphy. I got in touch with her and talked to her for quite some time and was selected to get a dog from the, the foundation, which happened to be a chocolate lab named Sherman. And uh, I was the only one really in San Diego County at the time that was working a dog in disaster work. Had him for about 10 months and was able to get him certified as a type one at the time. And uh, I was the first dog, I had the first dog that was certified in San Diego County. Break it down a little bit more, what you're talking about with 
uh, FEMA. So you are a firefighter with the city of El Cajon. Uh And as such, you were also on a FEMA disaster search team. Like, explain how that works. The way the USAR teams work is, so there's a task force eight, California task force eight. There's eight task forces in the, in the state of California, and there's 28 across the nation. So they're made up of mostly fire departments, uh, pers- fire department personnel, but there are civilians on there too. Uh, the dog handlers, doctors, some of the engineers um, are, are, are civilians and they participate in the team. So essentially what it is, is it's about a 70 person team um, there's, there's about 210 people rostered, but there's 70 people that go out when there's a disaster. San Diego Fire Department is a sponsoring agency, but they go to the different zones or regions in the county for, to get other departments to participate in it. So I was part of the East County squad um, when, I was a, when I was part of the rescue squad, when I was a rescue uh, squad member. And then when I became the dog handler, then I was still stayed attached to the task force, but I went to a search capacity. So each task force has a search dog team? Yeah, each task force has a search component to it. And so there's actually two two separate pieces to the task force. There's the full task force, which is a type one, which is 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 can go out and fulfill its total mission of of going out and recon an area, finding people and officiating the rescue. Um, they go out with about 70 people. Like I said, they got structural engineers, doctors, um, hazmat specialists, search specialists, canines, um, the rescue specialists that can break up all the rocks and move heavy stuff, uh, riggers that can work with cranes and, and that kind of thing. So that's the full boat, the full component. And that is a big team to move across the United States. Um, sometimes you can they fly them, sometimes they drive them, depending on where you go. So it's a huge, it's a huge undertaking. Now there's a type three team that leaves the majority of the rescue component behind and is more of a recon team that's concentrated on search. And so they'll send out the search team specialists with dogs and and go out there and recon areas. And if they need it, they can either call in another team to help or they'll, they'll bring in more teams. So they can divide it up into two. So it's really a search and rescue uh, type scenario. And you're only activated for like federal disaster, like disasters that need federal help. So they can be used for um, for um, obviously if it's San Diego City, they have the equipment. It's their, it's their equipment. They can use it for local resources. They can use it as a state request. Um, so like they've gone up to some of the mudslides and some of the other things. They've had USAR teams there assisting with that. Different pieces of them. And then obviously it is a federal um, a federal resource. So. Oklahoma City, you got you know World Trade Center, you got Katrina, a lot of the hurricanes on the East Coast, um, and that kind of thing. That the, uh, the USAR teams have been activated. So you your job is working for the fire department. So then, if you're activated for a FEMA task force, do you, does it still count like you went to work that day? What they do is we have, you have an agreement with there's a there's a signed agreement and stuff like that. So you basically when you get the phone call to go on a deployment, you're assigned to the to the USAR team and you're actually working for them and they backfill your position at work with somebody else. So you can be gone for, you know, well over, I don't know, up to three weeks sometimes, depending on what it is and what the needs are. So is this a volunteer position? Like, I mean, I know you're getting paid, but do you raise your hand and say, I want to be on a FEMA task force or are you chosen by your boss? Well, you, you, um, like when I got initially assigned and stuff, it was, uh, it was a competitive process. It was a volunteer competitive process. So it wasn't saying that, hey, we're going to pick five people and you're going to just do this regardless. It's like, who wants to do this? And then they had to sort it out to who are the most qualified to do it. 
Oh, wow. So it's like the elite. It's like an elite sort of force, kind of like special forces in the military. Well, there's some highly specially trained people that, you know, doing what they do. There's some, you know, pretty elaborate tools and, and equipment that they have to learn how to use. And, you know, and it's serious when you go out there, you have to be good at what you do. So your first job on, on a FEMA task force was, what did you say? In it's right, uh, it's, uh, we, we joke with them because they're just, you know, break rock, you know, you're a rock breaker. You go out there and, you know, and you're, you're, you're breaking stuff to rescue people and move big rocks around and things like that. So everybody on the team kind of teases each other a little bit about their, you know, about their positions a little bit or, you know, say, oh, you're just a knuckle dragger, rock breaker or something like that. And, and so that's, that's kind of what the rescue specialists are, is they're the ones that can take the big blocks of concrete and turn them into little pebbles, you know, if they wanted to with the equipment that they have. So. And so then you decided you wanted to be a dog handler after you knew that was a possibility. Yeah. So if you have your daily workload with the fire department and you're not being activated, well, how often would you say you were activated with FEMA? Well, there was a while there that, I mean, that there's, there's nothing going on. So you're just, you're just training and the dog doesn't know the difference about it. He's every day you go train, he thinks he's on a, you, you know, they think they're on a mission. It's the handler that has to kind of, you know, justify, Hey, why am I doing this? And why am I putting so much time in this? And so you find the handlers that stuck around for a long time and, and, and that kind of thing. They did it because they really liked it. They liked working with the dog. They liked the, um, that relationship. They liked the, the relationship with the other handlers and, you know, that bond and everything. And so it's, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. I got to go on a lot of deployments um, because our task force, we only had three dogs. You take four with you. So every time the task force went out, the, every time the task force went out the door, I got to go. Um, I even got deployed with other task force because they didn't have dogs. So I went to um, 9-11 with New York, with uh, LA City's task force because they didn't have their dogs. And so I got a call and went with them to, to uh, ground zero. So let's talk about some of your deployments, um, specifically at Ground Zero. Can you just walk us through that whole, your whole experience as a dog handler? I was actually driving to work, or and I lived in Julian at the time, so it was about an hour drive uh, to for me to get to work. And I was listening to everything that was going on on the radio. And I actually had gone, I'd, I'd go back to New York once a year at that same place um, by the Twin Towers, because I did pyrotechnics and shot the Macy's Fourth of July show every year. So I knew that whole area like the back of my hand. Um, and so, you know, I started thinking of the, 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 the muffin guy that sold the muffins every day in the morning that we'd go down and, you know, the, the guy selling the fruit and where we got our coffee at and then walking around, you know, at night when we came back from work and stuff. So that whole area just kind of was, you know, flashing into my mind. And that's what I was thinking about first was the, the civilians. And there was a fire station there, uh, a Liberty Station, uh, Station 10. Um, was there and we'd stop by and talk to them before and like that. So um, I'm listening to all this happening and those are, that's kind of who I'm thinking of is of what's going on. And when the towers collapsed, it was obviously thinking of the firefighters and, and the civilians and a lot of people that I knew from, you know, from going back there. And so when I got to work, it was on the TV and guys are asking questions. Hey, the USAR team, you know, they just started and I had to get away. I had to, I had to just get out of the station. So I did what I did best is I took Sherman and I started walking around the block. And so I'm walking around the block and it's about 10 o'clock here or around 10.30 and I'm walking around the block with them. And one of the guys comes out and says, there's a phone call for you. 
and it was Chief Chessmore from California Office of Emergency Services. And all he told me was, is get to March Air Force Base, you're going with California Task Force One. And it was like, okay. So, you know, I call home, call my wife, call, you know, basically, hey, I'm going to New York. You know, I'm getting deployed to New York right now. I'll, I'll call you if I can. And went upstairs and actually this was the, came into this office, this very office where the chief is at. And I told the chief, I said, hey, they want me to go to New York. And he goes, get out of here. Let me know if you need anything. And got my stuff that I had at work, threw it in the department pickup truck and drove to Marsh Air Force Base. And of course, at that time, everything was locked down. You know, so it was a little, little tough getting onto the base. It was, you know, things were backed up and I would, flew out with uh, LA City Task Force. Didn't know any of them, before, you know, other than the dog, the other dog handlers that were there from training with them. So we, we got on a plane and flew into to Newark, uh, New Jersey is where we landed. And we were there on, at ground zero at about two o'clock in the morning. So literally, you know, we left on the 11th as soon as it happened and uh, rolled in there about the about the 12th into the Javits Center is where we set up shop. And so it was very, for me, it was very surreal because I've seen that place whole and intact and where you could recognize stuff. And so it was, you know, now we're rolling in and the, the smoke's still building from everywhere and looked like a you know, big giant bomb went off and there was just all this destruction. We were anxious to get out and start start working and we were able to to get out there and start heading towards the pile, you know, like everybody called it. And then it was, you know, it was out on the pile working. First search I did, there's there's a bunch of people all over the place. It's it still has all that dust in the air and there's stuff still burning and there's just a bunch of civilians everywhere. Didn't have a lot of control over the area at all. And I can remember there's a big piece of glass that fell and everybody thought another building was coming down. So all the people, all the civilians ran off the pile. And so then it was like, okay, now's our, now's our chance to, to, to be able to send the dogs out to search without having all these people out on the pile. And I sent him and he went down a hole and I'm going, great. I've been here, <laughs> been here five minutes and I just lost my dog. <laughs> so I, I'm looking around, everybody's looking to see what, you know, the dog's coming out and he pops up over, you know, pops up over here and like, don't do that to me, man. <laughs> You're scaring me, you know. Uh, but that's he didn't he just disappeared. He, yeah, he just disappeared in the hole. He was working. He didn't care about me. He was a dog that he just he didn't need you around. And you know, all you were were there was to you know feed him and drive him someplace and, and you know let him go. So Sherman was he looking for people who had died, like dead bodies or live no, people? He's a lifeline dog. Okay. That's what he's doing. He's just you know running all over the place and and just searching. And uh, he had the incredible range on him. You know, he would just, and he was fast and he was very athletic. So he would cover just huge areas in a very short period of time. Um, you have other workers out there on the pile. Sometimes their scent would, if they were on the other side of a barrier um, and he couldn't see him or something like that, he might pick up their scent and he would work it out. And the dogs learn on their own that they're not going to bark at somebody they can see um, that's standing there. So if you were standing, literally standing on top of somebody that was trapped and alive, the dog could tell the difference between you and the person that's trapped in the rubble because, you know, amazing. they just can disseminate the difference between the different scents. And so, so it's and because, amazing. And because no one, when we train, the toy comes from the victim most of the time, 
that's what they're looking for. There's, they're, they're actually looking um, because they know if they find them, they're going to get their toy and play. It's a game for them. Right. And because the person standing there out in the open on the pile never pays them any attention, doesn't play with them, they don't care about you, <laughs> you know, for the lack of a better you know, term. So was he able to find anyone? No, unfortunately, the, everybody that was there, by the time we got on the pile, there wasn't a lot of survivors. Yeah. Um, the survivors that were there, um, the very few that were there, um, got rescued. They were surface debris, you know, rep, you know, rescues. And there wasn't a whole lot of them. You know, it, it was it was a very devastating event. Um, and it basically turned anything and everything other than steel and paper to dust. I mean, if you look around this office and you see... You know, a computer and a desk and chairs and a TV set and the file cabinets and all that kind of stuff. You didn't find any of that in the in the in the uh, in the debris. It had all just been turned to dust um, and just disintegrated. Um, and so, you know, all you had was the kind of some of the metal cladding from the building and the big steel uh, beams that were there, and you had a lot of dust, a little bit dirt, that, you know, the tight out. No, we did. Uh, we searched the pile for ten days um, and didn't didn't find anything. Obviously, we came across a lot of deceased, you know, people, and it was just as important to recover that, uh, recover them. I can remember all the the eight by ten, you know, eight eight by you know twelve papers or whatever taped up all over the fences. Have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? Have you seen this person? And I take comfort in knowing that people could take some of those down. Yeah. Because we were able to identify that, you know, get that person moved off the pile. We were able to identify them, and then they were able to to connect with the, their family members and stuff like that. So, did they, did they have teams of um, HRD dogs also working? At some point, you really don't need a dog to mm-hmm. to find somebody that's deceased because of the the smell. Mm-hmm. Um, what helped back there with the HRD dogs and stuff was the the small amounts um, because I mean. I mean, it's, this is gross, but there were lots of small pieces right? Yeah. You know, around. And so when they, they used them more out where they were dumping, where they were taking the, the stuff to get rid of it, because mm-hmm. then they could do a precursory, you know, mm-hmm. search to make sure that they weren't, you know, missing something. Because there were still, they were at the point where they were collecting anything for DNA samples. And oh, I mean, that's how small it was. And you could see, I mean, like I said, it was just. Awful. Yeah. There was a lot of. Um, a lot of that. Not a lot of intact yeah. people. The HRD dogs were not FEMA. At the time when 9-11 happened, there were only 40 certified type 1 FEMA dogs in the United States. Were they all there? No. Because Mary had the Pentagon oh, at right. the same time. So 12 of the dogs were stuck at a canine search specialist school in Washington um, that they couldn't even fly out right then and there because of the airspace and, and all that stuff. And even though they were FEMA dogs, they were stuck. Um, and they couldn't they couldn't deploy. That was one of the reasons why I went with LA because their dogs were at the at the search specialist school. And then you had a lot of people that showed up with dogs um, wanting to help. Their dogs weren't necessarily meant for that task. Shouldn't be there. And some of them were just frauds. You know, there wasn't a lot of dogs. I mean, there was three task forces there at a time. They went with us from California. So there was a dozen dogs that I know um, were, were good, strong working working dogs. And there was other task forces. The PD in New York has the FEMA dogs, um, as opposed to the fire department. You know, so they had some of their dogs there working. Um, New Jersey had their dogs there working. Did you take turns with the other ones on your task force, so you had time to rest, or how did it yeah, work? Yeah, what they did is they divided the they divided the the pile, um, which I think is 
if I remember correctly, is probably about 17 acres total. Um, they divided the, the pile up into sectors. And so they assigned the task forces, this is your sector. So within that sector, we have our four dogs. And so we did, a, we did a night shift and a day shift. So we had two on the day and two on the night. And so depending on the, the dog, um, so like with Sherman, Sherman was super fast and could clear an area, you know, in a large area. Um, he was good, but if you had a, a real detailed search that you wanted to do in a very small area, there was another dog, Bella. So we, we traded off depending on what, we were, what, what the mission was. And so if we need to clear a large area, you'd let Sherman go. If it was a smaller area, more detailed. And actually, Bella was cross-trained um, in HRD and lot, very, very, very smart border collie. How long would you let them work? Like, did you give them breaks, I'm assuming, every so often? Yeah, you'd watch them and, and look and see how they were doing. You know, obviously with all the dust and sometimes, you know, one, then it started raining. So we had a lot of different climate changes when we were back there. So you have to watch the dog. You know, if a dog's tongue's hanging out, it's not, it's not breathing through its nose, it's not searching. So you would give it some breaks. And then, of course, mentally, the dog would get tired as well. Um, because after, you know, 10 searches or however long, and every dog is different. You know, um, you got to recharge them a little bit. So you would do it out of sight of people. Um, so like if part of your task force, you know, might be trying to find a way down into a hole and they were already kind of down someplace where they were kind of hidden, you would just take your toy and say, hey, hold on this. I'm going to send my dog. He's going to bark on you. Play with him. And so you would just go around the corner and you would just kind of do a, a, a fun short, you know, and the dog would get recharged and, you know, want to go back and work again. It's kind of like just recharging their batteries. And it all for just a, a piece of fire hose is all it was stuffed with a towel, you know, and just a snotty, you know, chewed up toy. <laughs> but they would work for it, you know. Yeah, so they don't get depressed. Yeah, yeah. So then in your off time, uh, like, what was it like? I mean, you've been working as a first responder for so long, but how was that experience for you emotionally? Uh, at 9-11? Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I don't know. I kind of have a different attitude. It's like, I'm, I, I look at things like I didn't cause it. I'm there to help. I'm doing the best that I can. I, I want to be there. I, I'm one of those guys that if I were watching it on the news that I would, I would be irritated because I wasn't there. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it, you know, going there and stuff like that. The dog keeps you busy. You know, it's like you, you work your 12 hours on the pile and it's like having a toddler before you feed yourself, before you take care of yourself. You come back, you make sure your dog's bathed, you make sure there's no cuts, he's healthy, you know, give him a bath, you know, get all that stuff off of him, get him fed up, get him put in his crate, and, you know, there's another two hours gone. You know, so the same thing in the morning when you wake up. You don't just wake up and go to work. You got to wake up, get the dog up, make sure he's still doing good, feed him, you know, got to go to the bathroom, got to take care of him and stuff. So you literally have about four hours of rest a, a day. You mentioned earlier how you could tell that the dogs had a dual purpose because they lifted the morale of everyone around them. Do you think the dogs noticed the general emotional vibe among everyone? Do you think it affected them? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the dogs know when someone's sad or they're happy. You know, body language and, you know, posture and stuff like that the dogs pick up on. But you can see that the dogs liked it too, um, the, the attention, because we'd be at the forward base of operations, which, you, which in this case was an apartment building that was under remodel and so it was just gutted there wasn't there wasn't anything there it was just gutted and that's where we set up our forward base uh, so the bus would bring us there drop us off and we would 
um, go there and stage up there until we, we had a mission to go do something. And so the dogs would be laying down there and someone would come over and sit there, you know, and sit down next to them and, you know, start, start scratching in the air and stuff. And the next thing you know, the dogs, you know, <laughs> sprawled out, just like, just like a pet, you know, just like a normal dog. And, you know, and then when there was really nothing to do, sometimes people wanted to play with the dogs to make the dogs happy because you could see the dog was, you know, bored or antsy and, you know, you're telling the, you know, lay down for the 50th time because he wants to go do something. And then someone would come and say, you know, hey, can I, can I play with the dog a little bit? And it's like, okay, it's not going to hurt anything. You know, we just don't want to wear him out in case we need to, you know, to work with him and stuff. And so there was kind of that, that, that you know, holistic relationship that just kind of occurred between, you know, the, the, uh, the people and the, and the dog. And they kind of, it was kind of like I said, it was very holistic and it just kind of took its own, you know, its own shape. And you can see that both of them, you know, both of them benefited by it. Listeners, we're currently trying to determine the future of this show, and we would really appreciate your feedback. If you have a moment, we'd really appreciate it if you'd fill out our listener feedback survey. You can find a link to it in the show notes, or if you go to herobeside.me, click on the podcast button. You'll see a listener feedback survey button at the top of that next page. It only takes about two minutes to complete, and we would really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Back to the show. What other deployments have you gone on that stand out or do you have a, any stories to share? The, you know, Katrina was a long deployment, not a lot to do with the dogs. And, you know, people understand is the dog is a tool and the dog isn't always called for, you know, so in Katrina, you're not going to find a lot of people that are alive, you know, underwater. And so our task force, especially our dog handlers, we put the dogs in their crate and go to work and, didn't matter what it was, unloading trucks, whatever it was, going out and being part of the search team, running search cams, you know, breaching roofs, all that kind of stuff. So Katrina, you know, used the dog maybe twice out there actually searching. And the rest of the time was just, was just hands-on. Um, and then we would obviously do dog training, you know, with the dogs to keep them motivated so that they're not all cooped up all day long in a, in a crate. Have you ever been able to find someone on, this, on a deployment? No. Wow, so it's like, so how do you keep your... What keeps you vested in this work? If it- it's just the enjoyment of working with the dog and just that, that, that relationship. And like I said, it's, it's the, it's the people that you, that are the other handlers and constantly bring, you know, when we brought new dogs onto the task force, bringing new dogs along, bringing new handlers along. So you've been doing this for a really long time and you haven't, you haven't found someone on a search. So explain how the dogs are actually valuable. I'm just playing devil's advocate for this work if most of the time they're un- quote unquote unsuccessful? Well, they might be unsuccessful finding finding a, um, a person, so to say. It's not to mean that people haven't been found by dogs in different scenarios. But if you took this building that you're in right now, pretty large building, right? 10,000 square feet or better. And I took it and I smashed it down to the ground. And someone came and told you that there were people in there. And all you had to do is, is work with however many people you could round up to walk over the top of the pile and try to, try to either prove that there is no one in there or prove there is somebody in there because there's other buildings that are smashed and down. I can take a dog and run a dog over this footprint in less than 20 minutes and then take another dog and do the exact same thing and then turn to you and go, there's nobody in there. You can move on to your next mission. So even though they don't necessarily find that Easter egg, 
you know, or find that, that the, the elusive person, the value of that dog telling you that you don't have to spend the extra time and resources on that area is priceless. So, you know, a dog can, depending on the, 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 the pile, if this was 30 feet of debris, they'd be able to tell you if there was someone anywhere. Or you can come in and start bringing in some heavy machinery and start clearing some stuff out. If a human walks over the top of that pile and all they can depend on is their eyes or maybe a small search cam, they're only clearing maybe two feet of that pile, 30 feet. How long do you think you're going to have to spend there, the resources and, and stuff there, concentrating on that building when you could be doing something else? Mm -hmm. Do you find it stressful sending the dogs out to potential hazardous I mean, as a handler, you have to keep an eye out for hazards for oh, the dog, Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? absolutely. And we're very good advocates for them. You know, we put spotters out there when we can. And all the time that, that I've been working, dogs have only had one get hurt. And it was actually Sherman. And I didn't even know he got hurt until later on he was in the crate and he was licking. And I went, he had a puncture wound from a piece of wood. And he was fine. But, you know, we take, you know, go to great uh, trouble to make sure that the dogs somewhat safe. Did he have to wear goggles there? No. Search dogs search naked. They don't wear their collars or booties or vests or you know, anything. You know, if they're wearing a collar, they can get hung up on something. They can be in an area that you can't get to. You have all these things that you got to really look at, you know, especially, you know, when you show up someplace when there's not a lot been done or told. We went to a mudslide in uh, La Jolla where a couple houses had slid off, um, up off of Mount Soledad. And so, you know, you're there making shade. Did someone shut the electricity off? Did someone do this? They're not disposable, <laughs> you know? And so we take, you know, take a lot of responsibility for that. Looking back over your career, how do you think having canines as partners has added to your career? Well, it's kind of interesting because a lot of stuff that you do with dogs is nothing more than behavior modification. It doesn't really matter whether it's a dog, it's a person, it's a, yourself or anything else like that. And so. A lot of the stuff that I learned working with the dogs um, helped me be a, a very good training captain, you know, run the academies, helped me teach other dog handlers, um, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. It really taught you discipline. It taught you, you know, how to read people, how to, you know, read behaviors, you know, the, the right way to go about correcting behaviors. And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of it that doesn't really have anything to do with dogs, but it has everything to do with dogs. What do you think makes dogs special? I just think it's their, just their willingness to please and that relation, you know, that, that relationship that you get into. The majority of the dogs, that's what they want to do is they want, they want that bond. They want that relationship through, you know, the way that they're, they're put together. And I think humans are the same way. And I just think that that, that just kind of morphs into something on its own. Um, I don't think it's because you make it do that. And the dog, you can make a dog do something, but you, you hope that the dog wants to do it. That's like my last dog. He, I could make him search. I could make him go out. He liked the, the end part of it where he got to play with the person when he found them. He didn't like getting there. He didn't, he didn't, you could tell he just did not enjoy. And no matter how much you did with him, you couldn't get him over some of that stuff. So when the dog wants to do something that you want to do, I think it just makes it, it, it really has that working relationship, that, that, that good cohesive bond. And I think that's what makes it so special. Is there anything else that you think the listeners should know about search dogs or first responders or just anything? 
no matter what kind of dog you work in, search is search, whether it's wilderness or, or whether it's HRD or whether it's a live find, whether they're doing detection work or whether, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's still just search. And it's just, it's, it's an incredible bond that all the dog handlers have together. It doesn't matter what discipline it is, doesn't matter what kind of dog it is or what you're doing. I just think that there's that common, that, that common bond between the people that want to work with their dogs. And now they're using them for, you know, heck, they're teaching them how to, you know, search out COVID, right? They're using dogs for everything. Allergy detections, detecting seizures, diabetics, everything. And it's just so incredible how versatile they are. That's right. The amazingness of dogs plus the camaraderie and the dog handler community are basically the reasons why this podcast exists. Yeah. Two powerful forces, I'd say. Yeah. That's awesome that you're doing this. Thank you. And thanks for being on the show. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you enjoyed it, please consider subscribing on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or a number of other platforms. As I mentioned earlier, I'm your host, Shauna T. I'm a professional photographer, and I'm currently working on a photography project about working dogs. If you would like information about this project, please visit herobeside.me and sign up for the newsletter. Again, that's herobeside.me. Thanks so much. See you next time.